0: so much and amen to that too and appreciate that wonderful wonderful music and i don't think that i've ever sang that song i heard it coming down the hallway that you the first one you did and that was a new one for me there too appreciate that too okay we're still in Haggai. So if you wanna turn there, put your finger there because we'll have to turn over to to Ezra again. And today it's going to be somewhat of a review and then also trying to add some things in, things that I wish I'd have said, things that I didn't think of and things that I newly discovered and so on. So hopefully even though we're saying some of the same things that there will be at least enough um, new material that will appreciate somewhat more maybe even the message of, of Haggai. my spot okay kind of there here we go the setting you might remember was this that israel was in captivity in babylon and all of that of course was as a result of their declension spiritually they went into a tailspin as it were and the main and chief cause was idolatry That was the chief thing. They had forsaken the Lord's Sabbaths and, of course, many other things were as a result. But because of their continued refusal to obey the Lord and to honor him and to keep his laws and his statutes and his ordinances and so on, he fulfilled his promise that he had given way back in the very beginning. And so they find themselves in a foreign land under another king. The, kings of, the line of kings and the kings in Israel had come to an end, so there was no king in the land. Um, the king of Assyria had appointed uh, someone to be a governor over the land uh, to administer the, the uh, affairs of the king, and that was it. During this time in Babylon, you recall that God had called forth a remnant, And you may remember from uh, Ezra, we took particular note of the fact that this was a unique group because God had spoken to uh, through the king and basically said that all those who had a heart to rebuild were to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the house of the Lord. And so there was this, this remnant, a small number of people in actuality, not quite 50,000 people. And when you consider that there was probably, and who knows the estimate really, that's all there is as, as to how many Jews there really were, but probably somewhere in the neighborhood of at least 3 million. So they were really a relatively small number that actually had a heart to do and fulfill this decree to go back and rebuild. And so when he said, who is there among you of all his people? You know, it took somebody who had a heart for Jerusalem, for the house of the Lord, who was in Jerusalem we would say today, in fellowship with the Lord, who had the ultimate desire in their heart to be right with God and to fulfill his will and do those things that were pleasing to him. And it was that crowd, basically, that went back to build the house. And so, really, when we look at Haggai... We had a, a, a really a relatively unique setting here because his message then was to a people who had a heart for the things of God to begin with. Now, of course, the, it, it pays, I think, for us to, as I alluded to last week, to pay attention to the distinction between the message of Haggai... And the message that Isaiah and Jeremiah and some of the other prophets preached. They were what we call pre-exile or pre-exilic prophets. They preached to Israel prior to the exile. Then you have the post-exilic prophets. They preached to Israel after the exile when they were in Babylon. Then you have Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Malachi. And these three prophets, right at the end of the Old Testament, preached to the, primarily to this group, and there was more that came after this initial 48,000. There were a few more who came later with Nehemiah and so on. Their messages were to this, these groups of people, or this group, that had come back for the purpose of rebuilding the temple. And so they had a, they had a different demeanor about them. They had more of a spiritual mindset to them. When Jeremiah and Isaiah were preaching, they were preaching to people whose hearts were obstinate. They were totally rejecting God's message. They refused to repent. They spurned God's word and committed themselves to their idolatry. And finally, they got you know, so deep in idolatry that the Lord carried them off into captivity. And so you find then that these people were, that is, this remnant that had come back, were really in what we would term today a right standing before the Lord. And when this caravan came back, and it took some considerable time, estimated to be somewhere around four months, to make that long trek uh, through the Fertile Crescent, because they were clear over you know, in Babylon near the Tigris-Euphrates River. They had to travel kind of a northwesterly arc, you know, just like Abraham did, make a little circle, and then come back down to Israel. Took about at least around four months for that crowd of people to make their way. But the key here, or I should say the key, there's several, going to be several keys here, but one of these at this point then is to recognize the distinction between those people and the people that were still in Babylon because they really had separated themselves, set themselves apart. Even though God called those people in Babylon, my people, there was a difference between the ones in the land in Jerusalem who came back to build the temple and God's people back in Babylon. And some of that distinction even comes out when you look at, some of the other scriptures, in particular, I think, here of the book of Esther. In the setting in the book of Esther, you remember, was in Babylon. And we find there that even there, God watched over and protected his people. And he spared them from being decimated. But even in that book, you remember, there was no, there's no mention of the name of God in the entire book. And so there's a lot of spiritual truth to be understood in how God dealt with his people in Babylon as opposed here how he's dealing with his people in Jerusalem, those who had returned. And so through that, I want to look at some of the spiritual lessons that Haggai you know, gives to us. You know, the message that Haggai preached couldn't be preached in Babylon There were no hearts in Babylon receptive to the message that he was preaching. His message was directed to people who had a heart to hear. Now, we found out that they had grown lax. But you see, that's a real distinction that we want to make. Because even though the people in Jerusalem that Haggai was preaching to were in the right position... They were in the right place. It's just that their conduct wasn't matching up to what they were in position. And if you think about that very far, you realize that much of the New Testament, particularly Paul's epistles, are written directly in this manner to you and I. Paul labors often in the first part of his epistles to describe our position in Christ and what he has accomplished for us. And then in the latter part of his letter, he will describe then how our conduct should follow with the position we have. And really, that's what Haggai is preaching to God's people here in Jerusalem. They were in the right place. They were exactly where God wanted them to be. They just hadn't fulfilled what God had called them to do because they had called them there to rebuild the house and they hadn't done it. Um, Turn in in Ezra. A couple of things to note about these people who made the return. Notice the long list of names there in chapter 2. Isn't it interesting how that God hasn't done anything like that for the people in Babylon? But for this small remnant of people in Jerusalem who came back, we have this detailed description of these leading men and their families who came back with them. And the honor that has been accorded to them because of you know, all these names that has been recorded here. And then another thing that I think that stands out here is the fact that even though there was only only three, or uh, 300, 48,000 or so, it does remind me of Gideon, (laughs) doesn't it? The number of people was sufficient for what God wanted to accomplish. Just like it was for Gideon, he accomplished what he wanted to do with a very small number. You know, that's a heartening and encouraging thing when you see a small number like we have here. The only difference is is we need to be like the people of Haggai's day to be careful to set our minds and our hearts to the work that he's given us to do. I guess probably for me, one of my great fears is, and and I say fear in the sense that it's an inspiring or moving thing to me to know that if I'm in the right place, that is, or we would say it today for you and I, we have the right doctrine. We have the right perspective on scripture, but it's making sure that our work is backing up our position. That our labors or our good works as we're admonished over and over to do by the Apostle Paul lines up with the position we find ourselves in. And so often our messages, and I know I can be guilty of that, um, that our messages just rely totally on the doctrine You know, the wonderful truths that God's given us concerning what he has done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ and the cross of Calvary and the position that has placed us in. And these are great things. But there's an awful, awful lot written about how we should be conducting ourselves as well and the manner of life in which we live. Haggai's day, you know, they... They got busy pretty quickly. If you look at chapter 3, I think it is, and verse 1. Did I say Haggai? I'm sorry. You know there's not even a third chapter Haggai. I mean, I'm in Ezra. I'm in Ezra here. Back to Ezra. Sorry about that. And Ezra 3 in verse 1. Notice what he says there. And when the seventh month was come and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. Now, we took note of that last week. That there was a wholehearted, unified purpose for the cause in which they had come back to the land. And in verse 2, then stood up Jeshua, the son of Jozadak and his brethren, his, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, and builded the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. In verse 4, it says, they kept also the feast of tabernacles. But then when you turn over to verse 7, it says, and I had to turn over. It says they gave money also unto the masons and to the carpenters and meat and drink and so on. And look at verse 8. Now in the second year of their coming and unto the house of God at Jerusalem. So that took them a while to get settled in. It took them a while to get some homes and establish themselves there to where they could go about building the house of God. But the first thing they did was they built that altar and they offered sacrifices and they kept the feast. And then it says in the second month in there in verse eight began Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, and the remnant of their brethren, the priests and the Levites and all they that were come out of the captivity into Jerusalem And appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to set forward the work of the house of the Lord. Then stood Jeshua with his sons and his brethren and so on. It says right there in the middle of the verse to set forward the workmen in the house of God. That is, they appointed the leaders as to who was going to be over the project. Who was going to be in charge of this? Who was going to be in charge of that? And then in verse 10, the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord. In verse 11, they sang together by chorus and praising and giving thanks to the Lord. Verse 12, but many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers who were ancient men that had been the... We got some ancient men here, I think. Had seen the first house... When the foundation of his house was, this house was laid before their eyes wept with a loud voice and many shouted aloud for joy. You know, some were so thrilled and happy to see that the house of the Lord being built others, the older men who evidently would have been quite elderly, maybe like 90 years old or at least 80 who could remember the original temple before it was destroyed and then gone, having gone into exile and been gone for many years in Babylon, now came back and saw the smaller structure that was going to be built. And they only laid the foundation. It was only the outline, basically, of what the temple was going to look like. Because you remember, that was their fault. They didn't, they quit, they didn't finish. But here was the problem. They got these things done. They established themselves. They set themselves toward the work of building the house of the Lord. And then what happened? Chapter 4, verse 1. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity builded the temple unto the Lord God of Israel, then they came to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers, And said unto them, let us build with you. The moment they put their hands to the work for which God had brought them back to Jerusalem. Adversaries stepped in. And really there's no difference there than what you and I would experience today. When we set our heart to doing the work of the Lord to entering into that spiritual warfare that we must enter into if we're going to accomplish the work of God, then you're going to have adversaries. But something interesting here also, you notice they say, for we seek your God as ye do, and we do sacrifice unto him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Asur, which was Assyria, which, which was Babylon, by the way. It, you know, Babylon was the city. Assyria was this large region which had military control and, and governmental control at this time, which brought us up hither. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the chief of the fathers of Israel said unto them, ye have nothing to do with us. To build a house unto the Lord our God. Now, in verse 4, notice that there he says, The people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah. Now, if you go back to verse 1 of chapter 4, you'll notice there it says, the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity builded the temple. So you have now in the land two groups of people here. You have the remnant, which are described as the children of the captivity, and then you have in verse 4 these adversaries called the people of the land. Who were they? Who were the people of the land? Well, basically, they were what we know in the New Testament as the Samaritans. Without looking up a whole lot of verses, which I would like to do, (laughs) but we won't, there, if you look at the history of the Samaritans, when the northern kingdom was carried off into captivity, and you remember there was two exiles. One was the northern kingdom, 721 B.C., or uh, excuse me, yeah, 721 B.C., and then you have the second, the, the southern kingdom in 586 B.C. were carried off into captivity. When the northern kingdom was carried off into captivity... They didn't take every single person. They, they took mainly the, the leading men and women, the influential people and in their families, and they carried them off. They left the common people, the, people the, the, the agricultural people, the poorer people. They left some of them in the land to populate it. And then, to make sure that they didn't rise up again, and rebel against the king of Assyria, or Babylon, they brought in people from various countries. Now they brought some from Babylon, and they brought some from uh, excuse me, some from other areas that were under the control of Assyria. So they came from some other countries as well. As a matter of fact, I think I wrote that down someplace. Second Kings chapter 17, that might help me a little bit here. I forgot now. Forgive me. 2nd Kings 17. Well, that's it right there. Go to 2nd Kings 17 and we'll begin with verse 24. And there is a description of this event. It says there, the king of Assyria, in verse 24, brought men from Babylon and from Kutha, which was in over near Babylon, and from Ava, and from Hamath, and from Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And they possessed Samaria and dwelt in the cities thereof. And so it was at the beginning of their dwelling there that they feared not the Lord. Their In other words, these obvious foreigners, Gentiles, came into the land. They didn't have the fear of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which slew some of them. Wherefore, they spake to the, to, um, the king of Assyria, saying, The nations which thou hast removed and placed in the cities of Samaria know not the manner of the God of the land. Therefore, he hath sent lions among them. And behold, they slay them because they know not the manner of the God of the land. In other words, they didn't know the ways of the Lord. They were un—they didn't know the instructions that God had given Israel regarding how they were to approach him and worship him and, the, and his laws. And so then in verse 27, the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Carry hither, uh, thither one of the priests whom he brought from thence, And let them go and dwell there, and let him teach them the manner of the God of the land. Then one of the priests, whom they had carried away from Samaria, came and dwelt in Bethel, and taught them how they should fear the Lord. Now here's the problem. Howbeit every nation made gods of their own, and put them in the houses of the high places which the Samaritans had made, every nation in their cities wherein they dwelt. And the men of Babylon made Sukoth Benoth. And the men of Kuth made Nergal. And the men of Hamath made uh, Ash, Ashima, And the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak. And the Sepharvites burnt their children in fire to Adremelech and Anemelech, the gods of Sepharbaim. And so they feared the Lord and made unto themselves of the lowest of them priests of the high places which sacrificed for them in the houses of the high places. Verse 33, they feared the Lord and served their own gods. So now we have an admixture of Jews, Gentiles, practicing a syncretistic religion in which they just kind of threw everything together in one melting pot and that basically characterized the samaritans have you seen these cars running around town that has this sticker on the back and it's got all these religious symbols on it and if you read it look at it carefully it looks like it says coexist have anybody else you noticed that Okay, if you see one, now look, be on the lookout for it. Because if you see one, you're going to start seeing them all over the place. I see, I, the first time I ever saw one, I didn't know what that was all about. And I did a little search on the internet about it. Each letter of that, that uh, um, bumper sticker, the C O E X I S T comes from a symbol that represents another religion. So, obviously, the T on coexist is a cross. Um, the O, I think, is the star of David. There's something else for the, um, the um, what do you call that thing for the Islamic? Uh, yeah, what's um, the crescent. And then there's some other symbols I didn't recognize. I didn't know what they were. But if you search it out, you'll find out that what their their philosophy there is is. All of us can learn to live together. You can have your religion. I can have mine. But let's coexist together. Now that is a message, message that is entirely contrary to the word of God. God called his people out to be separate. But the world's way of doing it is no, we just need to learn to get along together. That's exactly what was happening here. They brought their gods from all these other countries into the land of Samaria, northern Israel. And then, not only did they do that, and I don't remember if it says it right here. Um, I forget now. I know it's over in Ezra. This is mostly about the joining up with the other gods. But one of the other things they did, you remember from Ezra, one of the other things they did that was really upsetting to God? They had intermarried then with these foreign peoples. And had—and even this remnant that came back, some of them had taken foreign wives. And they got pretty hot about that. You remember, and they made them put their wives away. The point being is that God has called his remnant, his believing people, those who have a heart for him to come out and separate themselves from the rest of the nations. Today, you and I would say we need to separate ourselves not just from the world, but from denominations, Or maybe we would just call it in a general term, Christendom. In other words, that organized religion that is represented by that little label, that bumper sticker, coexist. Because that's where the religion of the world is headed. They're calling on us to coexist with them. To come be a part of them. Join the local ministerial association. Come, you know, pray at our public or civic events and be a part of us. And I'll tell you, see, that's hard to stand up against. You might think it's easy, but it really isn't. It's hard because it's a spiritual battle you're fighting. It isn't just some, you know, something that we decided, well, we're just not going to do that. It is spiritual warfare that you're up against. Because that is where the spirit of this world is headed. And we see it more and more every day as we're headed that way. So, having said all that then. And by the way, you remember back in... Well, we won't go there. I don't want to take the time. You're familiar enough with the Samaritans in the New Testament then to recognize that this was has what, what had happened. Now, this at this point in time had only been maybe a hundred years. So, it had been long enough for them to intermarry and, and have children and to assimilate their cultures, as it were. And so consequently then, when the, the men of that had, the remnant had come back from Babylon and they put their mind and heart to the work and began to build the foundation of the Lord's house, when these Samaritans came and wanted to be a part of the work, they said, you have no part in this. You see, and that's hard when we have to say, no, you don't have any part in what we're doing. And consequently, conversely, we don't have any part in what you're doing either. Now, I find it interesting that here, you know, it's a pretty strong lesson. You don't have any part with us. Well, most of them don't want to have any part with us nowadays anyway. What's the harder part is God's people seem to want to have a part with the world. And it makes it so easy for them just to cross the line. Us to cross the line. And I'm simply saying that this message is very clear. And if we want to have the blessings of God as they saw it in building this house, if we are going to be participants in God's house, which God's house will be those who comprise his ruling government in the millennial kingdom. It's a spiritual house. Then we better be careful to follow what his word says and live in the fear of the Lord, in the proper fear of the Lord. And then you see the second thing they did there. After they had refused them, And said you have no part with us. The people of the land. It says in verse 4. In Ezra. Weakened the hands of the people of Judah. And troubled them in building. And hired counselors against them. To frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus. King of Persia. Even until the reign of Darius. King of Persia. Now, (coughs) Now that. Excuse me. That period of time was around 15 or 16 years. They stopped working. They quit. Because of their discouragement and the harassment of this, and this is important, I think, to see this, it is a harassment of people who had a mixture of, of foreign gods and the fear of the Lord. And that is where we find most of Christendom today. I, I find myself all the time, I'm thinking, well, this church over here, they're doing this, they're teaching that, man, that's right on. You know, maybe, well, you know, but what you find is you look someplace else and you find out, no, There's really a mixture of true and false. And it's difficult sometimes. And that's why I like people who have the gift of discernment. I don't, you know, all of us have it to a degree. God gives us the ability to see and discern certain things. But I like people who have an eye. Man, they can spot falsehood. They can spot spiritual error in a heartbeat. And when you know somebody who has that gift and they point something out to you, then it's well for us to take heed to those things. That's why so many times people don't want to be around people like us because they say, well, you just see the devil in everything. Well, sometimes that's true. (laughs) He's in most of everything. That's why we're supposed to, we're called out to be separate from that, to live apart from those things. Oh, well, better move on, hadn't I? Because the clock's moving on. Okay, chapter 5 of Ezra. So given these conditions and given this background, knowing the setting, what's going on in Israel at this point in time, knowing the the enemies that have risen up against the remnant that are to build this foundation and build the house of the Lord, and they had then grown lax in it and had... Forgotten it, basically, and give, and turned to their own homes, as we found in, in Haggai. They were paying more attention to their own houses than the house of the Lord. Then along comes in chapter 5 and verse 1. Then the prophets, Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, even unto them. Now, Let's turn back to Haggai now. Having said that, we basically went through chapter 1 last week. I want us to go back and revisit then the gist of the message. When God said through the prophet Haggai in verse 5, consider your ways. And also in verse 7, consider your ways. You remember what we said the literal rendering of that word consider is? Set your heart to your ways. In other words, it's kind of like, you know, some motivational speaker or counselor might step back today and say, look, just take a step back and let's just reassess things here and let's just see where we are. And that's really kind of what God's saying here. Think about where you're at. You've given all your attention over to to building your own houses, fixing them up, making them look nice, making yourself comfortable, and you've neglected the house of God. Now, the only point I want to make here is, you know, they were building a literal house. That's fair enough to understand. He tells them in verse uh, 8, go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house. Go up to the mountain, bring wood, and build the house. (coughs) So what are we saying again? Just a reminder that though they were in the right place, They were in the right position. Where God wanted them to be in Jerusalem, their conduct was out of line with where they were supposed to be. Now, again, all of this points out the difference between the messages of Isaiah and Jeremiah to a people whose hearts were hardened, to people whose hearts were rebellious, to people whose hearts felt like we're Jews. God is not going to forsake us. God is not going to, you know, forget about us. And he's going to look over all these things. We're okay. And of course they found out they weren't. And God sent them off into exile. But here we have a message to men and women who had a heart for the Lord. And of course if we continued on as we will in Haggai, we find that they quickly repented, turned and once again 15 or 16 years later they began to complete the house of the Lord that they had begun. And of course once again we see we're going to see weeping there over the size of this temple as opposed to the previous one. So, through their spiritual laxity, God sent a prophet to preach to them and get them back on track, as it were. And we need that. I find how often I need it so much to be right on track where the Lord wants me to be. So, this remedy. Why was the house of God so important? Well... I'm not going to have time really to finish that exactly, but where I want to go, but I'm going to, we'll talk about this part in Exodus 25. And we, we don't even need to turn there. Exodus 25, Deuteronomy 12, Psalm 15. So on, we find that God wanted a tabernacle, which ultimately became a physical temple. ...as a place where he might dwell amongst his people. I mean, that's pretty simple. There was nothing really beyond that. He wanted a place that he could, in a physical sense, dwell amongst his people. Now, there's really no difference there than there is between what he did for Israel... and a visible sense... And what he desires for you and I today in an invisible sense. That's why I don't like this, you know, the idea. And I know you've heard it hundreds of times, so we'll just repeat it one more. So we hear it 101. A church calling this building a church. Because it has nothing whatsoever to do, anything to do with church. It is nothing more than just a building to meet in. And by the way, there are many groups who recognize that fact. You know, the Jehovah's Witnesses recognize that fact. That's why they call their building what? A hall. The so-called Plymouth Brethren would do the same thing. They, uh, We had one in... Um, we had a, a Plymouth Brethren group in the Bahamas and we were there. And they called the place where they met Bible Truth Hall. They avoided the whole idea of calling it a church so that they could keep before their minds the idea that the church only exists when God's people are assembled together. They are brought together. When you come together, Paul said in, in uh, first Corinthians when you're gathered together and he was giving instructions as to their, their conduct and how they should act. And so what we look at here, I think is instructive to us when he says, go up on a mountain to get the wood. He didn't say go down in the valleys. This wood that he wanted used in the building of this temple came from a a specific place and it was high. And I think it's completely fair for us to make the association that there is a spiritual application here that the material for building God's house today doesn't come through association with The other religions of this world, or from the world itself, it comes from heaven itself. That's why, when we look at the, well, let me say, when the writer of Hebrews looked at the idea of the temple, he made the statement, and this is where we need to turn over to Hebrews chapter eight. So we ought to just take a look at that. Hebrews eight. You remember he's making the distinction about the superiority of Christ and so on over the, the uh, appointed priests of the tabernacle and making all kinds of comparisons there. In chapter eight, he says, in verse one, "The things which we have spoken, this, now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty where." In the heavens, not a priest that was going into a literal tabernacle, but one that's one into a tabernacle that's in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, one that's in heaven, which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, uh, who serve, verse 5, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. As Moses was admo- excuse me, admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. In other words, he's simply making the application here that when God gave instructions to Moses about how to build the tabernacle, he gave him the pattern for it that came from heaven. But in Christ and through the cross, that has been eliminated. It's done for. Our tabernacle in which we worship, the house of the Lord in which we worship is in heaven. Our hearts are to be directed towards heaven. That's why I pretty much abhor anything of a church setting that reminds me of a literal tabernacle. Like, saying, calling something, you know, this, in some churches they would say, you know, come down to the altar. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a bench there. I'm just saying the terminology we use, calling this room the sanctuary and things like that. Because all they do is plant in our minds and remind us that, or give us the association of the building with the tabernacle of God. When God's tabernacle today is in heaven, it is not here. And so when we meet to worship, that's where our hearts should be directed, is to heaven. He also says, uh, you remember back in uh, chapter 3 of, of Hebrews, and you don't need to really turn there. I just want to remind us that he says, wherefore, holy brethren and uh, partakers of the heavenly calling. That was That's the overriding thing that directs what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. And so when he comes to those things, now, look, and well, we could go to chapter 10 also. He talks about the shadow of the true if you go to Hebrews 12, you may remember then when he's summarizing all that he's had to say here in in Hebrews, he says in verse 18, for you are not come unto the mount that might be touched and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest as Moses found and they found on Mount Sinai. You haven't come to that. And the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard and entreated that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I do exceedingly fear and quake. Wow. The whole thing just tore Moses up. But he says in verse 22, You are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to an innumerable company of angels to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, not down here, but written in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of just men made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. All of those things that we could, if we took the time to go back and which we obviously cannot do to look at the blood, which Abel shed right up to the tabernacle and the offerings that are made there were all simply to guide us to that heavenly Tabernacle, that heavenly city where God dwells and ultimately desires for us to be present there with him and dwell there amongst his people. And so when we come to look at the message of Haggai then, you know, he was the, the message was really a very spiritually minded message for the people to be about the work of God for a particular reason so that they might build the house of God. And today Peter tells us that God's house is being built with living stones. You can't see it. Well, in as much as we can view each other, That is why back in Ephesians in chapter 4, he says the whole house is fitly framed together. And God has given gifted men, apostles and and pastors and evangelists and so on, teachers, so that God's house could be built with those living stones. And then the writer of Hebrews says, whose house? house you are if (laughs) jerry was right there if you continue in the faith that's the cry before us today continue in the faith with hearts that are focused on that heavenly jerusalem so we can take a message from an old testament prophet like haggai and to know that God hasn't changed his method, he hasn't changed his ways one bit from Haggai's day to our day. It's the same. And by the way, you know, lest you might think that, well, that's a pretty gruesome thing or hard thing, or, you know, if you think about it for even a moment, having said those things, you would realize that Haggai's message was really a message of encouragement. It was a message of encouragement because it was to people who had a heart for God. And when they heard the message, they responded and they responded appropriately and they did what the Lord had called them to do. And that's what we need to do. We need to take careful attention to what the Lord has instructed us to do as a church, as, a body of, as the body of Christ and be doing those things that are well-pleasing unto him. Having done those things, we can stand before him without fear at his judgment seat. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this privilege of knowing the joys and the wonders of your word. And though there were many, many warnings given concerning disobedience and even in Haggai's day, spiritual laxity and Uh, they were allowed to be distracted from the things you had called them to do and yet there was great encouragement because the people of God responded and we know that even yet today yet today there are those who when they have clearly explained the truth of your word they will respond though they be few in number and I pray father that we would be careful to do that very thing Respond when we hear the truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.